Hey there, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Samantha Fields, in for Kai Rizdahl. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for our weekly deep dive into a single topic. Today, we're going to talk about the future of telehealth. When the pandemic started, telehealth exploded with many doctor's visits going virtual out of necessity and companies like Walmart investing lots of money into telehealth services. But usage has since slowed down. It's still above pre-pandemic levels, but it's been pretty flat over the last year or so as a lot of people have gone back to doctors in person. And I've certainly been one of those people who started using telehealth a ton in the pandemic and I've started going back to the doctor more often, but still using telehealth. But we were wondering, is telehealth at a bit of a crossroads? So where is it headed? Where might be the next phase of telemedicine? And here to make us smart is Dr. Adithi Joshi. She's the chair of the Telehealth Committee of the American College of Emergency Physicians. She's also the former medical director of the telemedicine program at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. So can you start off by giving us a nice technical definition of telehealth? Is it just like a virtual doctor's appointment or is is there more under that umbrella? That's a great question. There are a number of definitions out there, but I like to keep things simple. So for me, it's basically using technology to have a medical encounter between two parties. So the way we traditionally think of it, the way that people used it in the pandemic that we think about and see in the news is between a patient and their doctor or their uh, advanced practice provider, right? And that we consider provider to patient. The other type of telehealth that's common is provider to provider. So meaning there's Mm -hmm. two clinicians on either side. Oh, so when you say that, what do you mean two clinicians on either side for what kind of thing? So imagine that you're in a hospital in a rural area and you come in with a, let's say a stroke. This is a common occurrence in a long running program. So let's say there's nobody there who is a stroke neurologist. So what Mm -hmm. you can do is in the emergency room, the doctor there can video in to a tertiary care center, the ones with all the specialists there. They can Mm -hmm. video in to a stroke neurologist And so the stroke neurologist can examine the patient over video with that other doctor present. They figure out what to do next. And then that patient gets the care either at that place or gets transferred to the tertiary care center. So the idea is that you're getting specialty consultations to doctors speaking to try to get the best care for the patient. So that's another type of telehealth that exists. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. My understanding is that before the pandemic, there were a lot of restrictions around telehealth, sort of in terms of insurance and licensing for doctors and things like that. And that when the pandemic started, a lot of things changed under the public health emergency to expand access to to telehealth quickly. I'm curious if you can sort of tick through some of the most important things that had to change in order to be able to expand access quickly. So one of the biggest was just being able to reimburse care. A lot of Mm. clinicians or hospitals or health systems, they didn't want to try it out. It's a lot of investment, right? So you have to get a platform. You have to market to your patients. You have to determine which patients need it. So it's a lot of time that goes into it. And if you weren't being paid for it at the level of either an in-person visit or it wasn't cost effective, it wasn't going to happen. 
And so mm-hmm. when it became a necessity, obviously, that went away. And so we saw some of those benefits. Another big change was licensing. So technically, uh, you know, so when I used to live in New York, I technically could only see patients with my New York license in New York State. So if I mm-hmm. cross the border to New Jersey, I can't see patients in New Jersey unless I have a New Jersey license. So that's the way it is. The medical boards and the state medical, which are state run, are the ones that license you per each state. So the the emergency waivers allowed some of these restrictions to decrease. It did take states to buy into it, meaning the states had to also say, yes, you can have this relationship over state borders. But many of them did that because they knew Mm -hmm. that without it, it's hard to practice telemedicine just the way that our states and our borders are. Right. I remember seeing uh, providers who were like in Arizona and, you know, Pennsylvania, which was a little bit new for me. Um, With so many more people starting to use telehealth during the pandemic, why do you think usage has fallen off in the last year or so? What's changed? The usage fell off basically because we all went back to our normal way of practicing, which is in-person care. You know, I'll tell you, before the pandemic, we had a lot of problems just uh, or just challenges trying to get engagement from clinicians and patients. The pandemic Mm -hmm. forced people into it. And so because of that, not everybody necessarily did it in a structured, formalized manner. It was a state of emergency. So they brought on and they started doing telehealth, but not everybody liked it or saw its benefit. And then plus, there are things you need to see patients in person for. And so we're just going back a little bit. Now, saying that, there have been a lot of changes. A lot of people have tried telemedicine. And so I actually see and hear more people wanting a hybrid practice, but it cannot cannot continue the way that it did during the pandemic, just for that emergency reason. Right. And I'm curious what you see as sort of the benefits of telehealth and the limits in terms of are there particular sort of practice areas or kinds of appointments that work just as well virtually and others that, as you were saying, there's some things that you really need to go in in person. You need a doctor to see you in person to be able to diagnose something. I'm curious if there are clear areas where it works really well and and not so well. I've been fortunate enough to basically see telehealth being able to work in multiple ways. But I will say for the highest yield for people who are just getting into it, we can think of start with patients just at home, you know, well, we, as we all were during the pandemic. You get to see somebody and get some information. You also basically get triaged. Hey, uh, I'm concerned about these symptoms. Do I need to come in? What can I do? Etc. And sometimes the answer is yes, you do have to come in. But that kind of care is easily done. For primary care, a lot of follow-ups can be done that way. Even prior to the pandemic, CMS had increased reimbursement for some of that. It's a center for Medicaid services. Yes. And then, you know, when you go into the hospital, you can also see specialists like we were talking about. Uh, You can actually get some of your consults done faster. And there's also an ability to oversee. There are a number of programs, such as a tele-ICU, where there's somebody watching ICU beds from a distance and trying to make sure that everything is running smoothly, because obviously with a lot of nurses um, who are really busy with really sick patients, you can have another set of eyes to help you out. So there's a lot of potential 
for telemedicine in a lot of ways. So when I say the term hybrid, I actually mean it that we can make almost many departments hybrid. So what happens when this public health emergency officially ends? We've been hearing a lot of the phrase telehealth cliff to describe the prospect that once this public (laughs) health emergency is officially over, all these rules and restrictions about who can use telehealth and where and when will go back to the way they were pre-pandemic unless Congress steps in. Are you concerned about that? And what might that look like? I'm not concerned about it, and here's why. Even you know, even prior to the pandemic, CMS had been slowly ramping up their telehealth reimbursement. So there was already a history and an interest, especially in rural areas. So, so now the pandemic happens, right? And we put in a whole host of public health emergency measures. I see and understand how because people are worried, clinicians are worried, health systems are worried that they're going to go away, There is a hesitation to investing in telemedicine. Now, saying that, there are a number of the waivers that are going to stay in place. Currently, for virtual primary care, even in the emergency department, we get paid for the same, uh, same as in-person care as we would over telemedicine. This is through Medicare. We can also practice anywhere. It doesn't have to be just for rural areas for telehealth. Um, some of the things that we wanted during the pandemic in the emergency department, so as a background, I'm an emergency medicine physician, was making sure that our medical screening exams could be done virtually. Um, and that is going to continue. And we're also going to be able to continue to supervise teaching physicians. Now, there are things that are going to change. So some of the things that are going to change are they're going to go, so, excuse me, the audio-only telehealth solutions are likely to go away. And also Mm. the non-HIPAA solutions for telemedicine are also likely to go away. Now, they're not going to go away yet. This is 151 days after the public. Can I pause you for a second? Can you explain more Mm -hmm. about what you mean by the non-HIPAA telehealth options? Yeah. So HIPAA is what we consider our security and privacy for patients, confidentiality and records. When we decided that, so when I started in telemedicine, every platform had to be HIPAA compliant, so secure in a manner that we would expect for medical records. During the pandemic, there was an opening for using some solutions such as Zoom that are not necessarily made for healthcare environments. Now, many of these solutions were made HIPAA compliant, but the waivers actually allowed you to use these everyday solutions instead of having to get a telemedicine HIPAA platform. I'm curious, you were mentioning sort of patients in rural areas, and I imagine that that is sort of one demographic that has particularly benefited potentially from the expansion of of telehealth access. I'm curious if you can talk more about who's been using and benefiting most from this expanded access. Sure. So rural areas already had telemedicine reimbursement, especially in Medicare. Mm. So the people who really benefited the most were probably, well, really everybody who could access uh, telemedicine in general, 
which unfortunately is still mostly, there's still a lot of disparity in who can do that, right? So rural areas don't necessarily have great Wi-Fi and the poverty levels are higher. There's less access to devices. So really these newer waivers are going to help people who already had access to some of those things, more urban areas, suburban areas, and those who are closer to hospitals that are what we call um, secondary or tertiary care centers. It was actually harder in rural areas to expand it more than it already had been. Now, saying that, the the relaxation of the licensing helped everybody. And so that certainly helped the rural areas as well. So what do you see as the future for telehealth in terms of the role that it's going to play in our medical and health lives moving forward? I see it as just part of our healthcare in the future. You know, we're having this conversation about telemedicine, but in 10 years, we're not going to say this is a telemedicine visit or an in-person visit. It's just, I saw my doctor and that's how we're going to describe it. Because I really think that when we formalize how telemedicine can be implemented into our current clinical practice, we're going to have and see that it's going to be just a normal part of our everyday care. Dr. Adithi Joshi, chair of the Telehealth Committee for the American College of Emergency Physicians. Thank you so very much for sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. So shameless plug here. Absolutely shameless. One of the (laughs) other shows that I host, which is called Call to Mind, we actually did a whole episode on how telehealth has been used for mental health care during the pandemic. And and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But did you uh, use any telehealth during the pandemic or during the ongoing pandemic still now, Sam? The ongoing pandemic, indeed. Uh, You know, I went on a trip and came back uh, sick, some gastrointestinal issues, and was able to log on, request an appointment with a doctor, uh, chat about 15 minutes later, and get a prescription for Cipro, uh, all within about half an hour. And that was a pretty incredible use of telehealth for me. So yes, big fan in in certain areas. Yeah, that would have been like a whole let me take time off of work, schedule a doctor's appointment, get to the doctor, wait at the doctor's. And now you're just in and out. I had um, I went I had a nail infection that I think I probably Ooh. went to the wrong salon and it was like super swollen and infected. And it was gross. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get sepsis. I'm going to die because I'm dramatic. <laughs> and, you know, I get in this telehealth meeting and I take a photo and I'm like, you know, freaking out. And they're just like. Yeah, here's some antibiotic cream. It's a little bit stronger than Neosporin and wash it with this (laughs) medical wash and you're going to be fine. Other than feeling very deflated (laughs) about, you know, (laughs) my overstated drama, uh, I was like, oh, well, that was simple enough. Yeah, it makes it pretty easy. And I think it's probably a better use of medical resources uh, because everybody's time, right? Yeah, because a lot of this stuff... Instead of, you know, it's handled by nurse practitioners who are incredibly skilled at dealing with most of the things like my overdramatic infected finger, you know. So anyway. And I think uh, what you were saying, too, about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying what you were saying about uh, the show on Call to Mind. I think a lot of people used it to access therapy and to access mm-hmm. a therapist that they might not be able to have, uh, have you know, gotten to see in person 
otherwise. And I think a lot of people for that, at least don't want to go back, you know, it, takes the commuting time out of it. It might make you, um, it might help you connect with a therapist with sort of a specialty who isn't in your immediate area, but is still in your state. So there's not a licensing issue. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be one that I know a lot of people have taken advantage of and want to continue. Well, and especially if you're talking about in communities where maybe there's more of a stigma around mental health care, now you don't have to walk into the therapist's office and worry about, you know, explaining to people where you're going or why you're away or why you're going into this space if it's a known space. And so I think it really did increase a lot of access. But in the meantime, let us know what you think. What's been your experience using telemedicine? Are you into it? Are you not into it? How do you feel? Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we'll be right back. Okay, time for the news fix. Sam, go ahead. All right, so I read a couple of articles this morning, uh, two different newspapers talking about two different hurricanes, both about rebuilding in Florida. Uh, The first one was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was about how interest in buying homes in southwest Florida in some of the cities and towns that were just hit really hard by Hurricane Ian has not gone down at all. And in fact, yeah. uh, there seems to be more interest from some investors and wealthy prospective home buyers who want to buy up damaged homes, maybe at a lower price, or homes that are fine, but in areas that were badly affected by Hurricane Ian. And they just don't seem to be deterred at all by the threat of sea level rise or climate change bringing more storms like this. Um which is honestly just astonishing to me, I have to say. Uh, it sounds like some longtime residents of the area are reconsidering whether they want to stay, but that overall there are more people interested in moving in and buying in these areas than not. Um, and then there's another piece that, that just struck me as related today, and it was in the Los Angeles Times. And that one was about rebuilding in Mexico City, Florida, which was a small town that was almost destroyed by Hurricane Michael in 2018. And they're still very much in the process of rebuilding there four years later. And what's happening there, uh, the article says, and I've heard this too from people that I've interviewed in the past, is that People who do end up rebuilding often after massive storms like this, the people who can afford to rebuild, who are able to, are wealthier people and second homeowners. um, And a lot of low and middle income families often end up not being able to rebuild or choosing not to and leaving. And so what ends up happening, big picture, is that a lot of cheaper, more affordable housing often doesn't get rebuilt at all. And these storms can end up sort of permanently reducing the amount of more affordable housing stock in in cities and towns. And, you know, I just keep thinking about how that adds up as we have more and more of these storms that are doing a huge amount of damage to communities all around the country. Yeah, Janet and I were talking about this yesterday and just what it means to be able to live on the coast at this point, because we're talking about housing codes and how expensive it is to rebuild. And so it's pretty much that it is becoming only the domain of the very wealthy 
to live in these areas. But I wonder if, you know, are they still going to be applying for federal disaster aid, you know, when their very expensive homes get uh, destroyed even if or damaged, even if they survive? It's it's the climate migration that, um, you know, is just getting started in so many places, but it's already been happening all over the world. And I'm really looking forward to uh, Amy Scott's ep- uh, season Me of How too. We Survive yeah. because she's looking at exactly this issue, look, starting in Miami specifically in terms of how the water is coming in and climate change is happening, but Miami is still booming. And so I'm really looking forward to to her coverage of that. Yeah, me too. That comes out um, tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, So I've got two stories, one that broke yesterday, but it's been percolating in my brain and it was everywhere, which is news that the Trump organization, when Trump was president, the whenever he would travel, he would stay at one of his hotels whenever he could. And the Secret Service would have to stay in the hotel with him to protect him. Also, whenever his family traveled because he gave his family jobs in the administration, they would get Secret Service protection and stay in the hotels. At the time, the president was saying and the Trump organization was saying that the federal employees coming with him would travel either for free or at cost, right? Basic rates, whatever. So there was a House Oversight Committee investigation into this that put out its report on Monday and found that the Trump organization in reality, charged exorbitant rates of upwards of $1.4 million over four years to protect the former president and his family. And sometimes the nightly rate on dozens of trips could be as high as $1,185 per night. So it's mind boggling. It's a lot of money. And then, um, (laughs) Just really quick, my other story is a speech that President Biden just gave a little bit before uh, we started recording here today, saying that if the Democrats sort of lock in their majority or expand that majority in after the midterm elections, that basically the first thing he's going to put across the table to try to get through Congress is legislation codifying abortion rights in this country. For a president who, for much of his presidency, has kind of kept a distance on issues of abortion, he has really leaned into this since the court overturned Roe versus Wade. And I think it's very interesting that he's basically staking the midterms on it. So, yeah, I'm going to be really curious to see how this plays out, because we have seen in a couple of places so far in in state elections that uh, there are significant numbers of women, of young women who are registering to vote, who say they're motivated by this issue. So I'm I'm very curious to see how this is going to play out in the midterms in a couple weeks. Okay, that's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. We got this voice memo after our recent interview with The Atlantic's Adam Sower on the racist backlash over casting black actors in fantasy TV shows and films. This is Jay Nyer from Berkeley. I'm a physician, a writer of sci-fi and fantasy, and a person of color. 
It seems to me that sci-fi and fantasy are two of the last genres of fiction to truly integrate, both in publishing and on screen. One way to change this and to stifle the racist backlash is to decrease the need to write Black, Indigenous, and people of color actors into storylines by working with stories in which they have a central role to begin with. Black Panther showed the way, but we can go so much further. Until the publishing and film industry are ready to tell our stories, we will always be relegated to supporting roles or non-traditional casting. Such a good point. Such a good point. During uh, my reading binge while I was in lockdown, you know, or when some of us were in lockdown, I know a lot of people never got to go into to stay at home during the pandemic, but I started... I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy anyway, but I started being very intentional about reading science fiction and fantasy from writers of color and queer writers who center those experiences in the fantasy genre. And there's so much. There is a lot of really great writing out there that takes a completely different take. Like there's just a completely different take on the genre when you're not sort of inspired by like medieval Europe, which so much of fantasy is kind of based on and the, you know, Star Wars type, Star Trek type um, realities for sci-fi. And there's a ton of great content out there. Is there anything you'd really love to see made into a TV show or film? (laughs) Um, Priory of the Orange Tree was an amazing book. And I think that could make a great movie and I will forever and always uh, feel that Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern would make a wonderful series. It's not exactly centered on a person of color experience, but there was a lot less centering of whiteness in that series than I think in, in many others. A good start. All right. What were you saying? I just said a good start. Yeah. All right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Mike Gillis. He's the head writer at The Onion who wrote that hilarious Supreme Court brief defending parody that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Here's his answer. I thought I knew that comedy was the end all and be all for life. Um, And when I first heard that I had the opportunity to write for The Onion a decade ago, it was the most amazing feeling of my life. Uh, It was like lightning hit me. But when you do it day in and day out, you realize that there's a specific tone and worldview to satire, which is necessary, but it's not all encompassing because it's oriented towards pointing out the negatives in the world, the flaws in politics Mm. and culture in your own life. And it's not as directed towards finding grace. Um, it's really corny, but as I've gone along in life, I've been looking for more pockets of grace and equanimity and hope in my everyday life. And that's something that's really hard to capture in satire. You can't really write a headline like, report, you matter, sub, there is a spark (laughs) of the divine in all of us and you are no different. That usually gets pretty weird looks from people in the writer's room. But all of that's to say that it's worthwhile to seek out other worldviews even outside of very worthwhile ones, like a comedic approach to life. I love that. That is great. And I think it's such a valuable lesson 
when we're all spending so much time doom scrolling and hearing bad news after bad news after bad news that you can take a moment to look for, I love that phrase, pockets of grace and equanimity and hope. I love that. I'm going to hold on to that. Me too. You can send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question to make me smart at marketplace.org or leave us a message at 508 827 6278, also known as 508 You Be Smart. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing later on by Ming-Shing Quigon. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. so fun to hang out with you, Sam. Although it's more fun in person, I have to say. For sure. But I'll take what I can get. (laughs) Thanks for having me.